to you by dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, bringing you research, news, career tips and support. Dementia Researcher podcast. Hello, I'm Dr Anna Volkmer and I am delighted to be back in the hot seat to host this week's show. Today we're going to be discussing clinical academic careers and how leaving clinical work to do a PhD can help your clinical career. In fact, doing a PhD doesn't mean you have to become an academic at all. I work clinically as a speech and language therapist for 13 years before I gave up clinical life, just for a couple, to complete my PhD. Um, I've since gone back to clinical work and now have what you might call a clinical academic portfolio career in that I do a bit of both. So I do a bit of clinical work and a bit of research and a bit of lecturing. And for me, that's the best of both worlds. So today I am delighted to be joined by two other healthcare professionals who also undertook a PhD and then have gone back to clinical life. Um, We have Dr. Emily Oliver, a nurse by background, and occupational therapist, Dr. Naomi Gallant. Hi both. Hi. Hi. Now we've all taken a slightly different path, so I thought perhaps we could introduce ourselves and describe each of our pathways in this process. Emily, do you want to go first? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as Anna said, my name's Emily. I'm a mental health nurse by background. I went straight into my PhD actually from my undergraduate study. So following my um, completion of my mental health training, I went straight into the clinical academic doctorate. Following the completion of that, so that was a four-year programme, I went on to join a charity, actually, so Dementia UK, as one of their dementia lead nurses. And then I stayed in that role for a couple of years, and then I moved into the Acute Trust to be the dementia lead at Portsmouth Hospital University. Um, Undertook that role for a year, and then since then I'm the senior matron in the medicine care group, so I've been in that role a year now, which is crazy, it's gone so quickly. So yeah, quite a different career path, but that's me. How did you get funding to go straight into a PhD into your from your undergraduate study? It's quite a blur actually, but the um, university, I remember them putting out to say that these fellowships were available, so clinical academic doctorate. So you were paired up with a local um, higher education institute and then um, a... Uh, organization a healthcare organization so I was able to actually work at Portsmouth Hospital which is where I am now so I've sort of gone 360 and so I did two days clinical there and then I did three days at the university undertaking the PhD so there was a theme of what we should research and then obviously that evolved as we um, started on that PhD journey. Okay so the university actually held the funding? So it's actually funded by the um, NIHR, so the National Institute of Health Research. Yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. Sorry, Naomi, let's come to you. Tell you, tell us a bit about yourself and your path. Um, yep, so I'm Naomi and I'm an occupational therapist. Um, I met Emily on, the, on our doctoral fellowship, so I did the same um, PhD pathway as her, but I actually worked as an occupational therapist um, for about four years before taking that on so I did that I worked in a did a sort of few junior 
sort of rotation posts and got a little bit of experience, then went into the clinical academic um, sort of pathway through the doctoral fellowship that we both did. So I, like Emily, I was working clinically two days a week and I was, the rest of the time was um, studying for the PhD. Um, with So I was with the NHS Trust and then the university um, and then I went from that into back into full-time clinical work as an occupational therapist um, and actually I've been in that same role for four years now um, although the last year I've been on maternity leave so not quite um, but scarily I've realised that adds up to 12 years since I graduated as an occupational therapist but um yeah, so I've been in a role as a um, team lead occupational therapist uh, since then. Obviously, I've done various different bits and pieces within that, but I'm sure they'll come up um, throughout the podcast. But yeah, so slightly different again, but also similar. Well, just to reassure you, I worked out the other day that it's 25 years since I started my <laughs> therapy training, so like a quarter wow. of a century, which makes me... <laughs> Ancient, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, um, it's really interesting. So, was yours, Naomi, similar to Emily's in that you saw a kind of an advertised um, opportunity, and there was themes, and that you, it was kind of structured that way. Yeah. So, I actually um, came. I knew somebody else who, on my occupational therapy undergrad degree who had gone, like Emily, had gone straight into the PhD from undergrad. So, I knew of the. Um, I knew of the programme that was being run um, but I you know I just thought it was this really clever thing that she was doing and then I came across uh, one of the lecturers at university at a study day um, that the uni was doing a dementia study day that my job had let me go to for the day and um, she was like oh you should do the PhD and I was like okay (laughs) why not why not yeah. no there's more reasons for it than that yeah, yeah, but um, that's how I came yeah. across it and how I really was pushed into it yeah yeah okay that that leads really nicely onto my next question which was about why you decided to do a PhD in the first place and um kind of what clinical skills you think transferred to your PhD I, I have to say I I guess I had a similar experience to um you Naomi in that I, having gone away from, I did my undergraduate and went away. I actually, I actually, I genuinely didn't think I was um, clever enough. I I'm, was like, I'm not academic, finished my undergrad. I thought I just need to get out and earn money. Um, I, you know, I haven't got the skills to do any further study. I'm, uh, you know, writing isn't easy. <laughs> um, stats are hard. <laughs> so hard and I'm not academic material but then um, I realized that I started specializing in dementia um, when I was in Australia actually and realized that there just wasn't enough research evidence in this field for speech and language therapists which is my clinical background and um, and then I started exploring opportunities and um, realized that maybe if I did a PhD I could not only help the patients by creating more research, but also help my profession by commit, you know, creating evidence that would mean more speech therapy would be commissioned. And, and then I, and so I had this kind of idea, this like, Oh, you know, I could, 
you know contribute to my clinical make my clinical area better and and then I, and then but i was still petrified of actually trying for it but as i've done more academic work i've realized you don't have to be that clever <laughs> you just have to be really interested yeah yeah <laughs> yeah fair? i completely agree yeah. absolutely i think as long as you've got oh sorry no me like a bit of you've got some drive and you know like you said the reason i went into it is because i undertook my um dissertation and you had to propose an audit oh yeah um and I was like, oh, wow, you can really influence exactly. practice through a quality improvement project on a longer term scale than you can sort of being reactive day to day. And I think that's what did it for me that I just thought, oh, I'd love to be able to influence practice at a bit of a higher level than I could if I was um, solely undertaking clinical work. Yeah, I was the same at that, that influencing practice and also... Um, I think like um, like you were saying, intelligence isn't really something that comes into it. And I remember, you know, throughout the PhD and, and when you say you've got a PhD, people are like, oh, you must be so clever. And I'm like, no, you're yeah. just, just really, you know, just really passionate about something very small and specific. Um, but also, like Emily says, and you have that drive and that resilience to actually per- persevere. Um that you know there's a lot of skills that come into doing it but it's not about being clever at all um but my yeah like Emily was saying about influencing practice my experience when I was in the hospital setting was just how dire some of the understanding and and care for people with dementia specifically was not because of the staff but because of the system and how you know um people with dementia just didn't really fit into our system that we have like and it's just such a not the right place for them at all and I just thought something's got to be done about this Um, and I think that's what drove me to go into the PhD because I thought I could at least perhaps use it as a career step um, to get somewhere more influential than just following that traditional going through the agenda for change pay scale banding and you know, getting to being about 40 and um, probably a bit disillusioned by that point and not, um, that's a very negative view of, you know, that's not what everyone does, obviously, but it's a risk in, in the NHS for sure. I agree. And and I think what you're flagging is that idea that when you see a client and you understand um, and you meet people with dementia, you you become really passionate about what they need and, and that's what carries you through that and knowing that you can speak to any GP receptionist, any um, any ward clerk. If you've got that skill, I think you can negotiate all of academia um, <laughs> in terms of. Yeah. So I think people think it's a bit of a myth around the intelligence piece because yeah. the PhD is a training yes. program in itself. So I, for one cannot stand statistics I hate maths I'm not good at it and as part of my PhD I was able to go to um like the Royal College of Statistics and do like Mm. statistics for dummies for two days and you know I didn't have that skill before I took on the PhD and I think there's a misperception that the PhD is 
is not a training program actually it trains yeah. you to be a researcher and academic doesn't it so it isn't you yeah. don't have to have those skills before you start that's how exactly how um I see it actually it's a really nice way of putting it and I've always thought of my I think only going on to the PhD did I realize that in the academic world the PhD is almost the bottom rung of the ladder like it's your step into being a researcher so I almost see it as I've got a degree in occupational therapy to be an occupational therapist and I now have a degree in research to be a researcher I've added it to my my um toolkit as it were to my I can't think of the word I'm trying to say but to actually use and pull on to build my career and actually I can never not be an occupational therapist because that's what I've been trained to do and now I can never not be a researcher because that's what I've been trained to do but the beautiful thing about doing both together is that that's what we've done from the start I think I don't know if Emily would agree but I can't I've never been a researcher without being a clinician, so I couldn't say what being a researcher on its own is like, but I think that's a really nice thing to have. Yeah, and the two are so cohesive, aren't they? Yeah. So, you know, all of healthcare professionals is based on evidence, evidence-based practice. So actually we are doing mm-hmm. research or learning from research all the time. And it's always there now isn't it? it is your comment about audit I think a lot of clinicians don't realize that audit is is and quality improvement practices are a type of research mm-hmm. um, I th- and you know that idea also of being curious about our clients and working out what's going to meet their needs that journey you go on is almost a small it's a piece of detective work you're doing with a person that that's kind of a bit of research but I would say the most common questions that I get from clinicians actually aren't about the pra- those components of what is a PhD. They're often much more about the practical stuff, like how did you um, get the funding, which was why I was kind of saying, where did you get your funding from earlier on? Or people say, how did you find the time to fit in with your life? Um, do you have any tips on that front, the two of you? I think that's really uh, difficult because for me I do feel like those kind of things were handed to me quite nicely in doing the clinic so actually I would probably promote cert- finding a fellowship of some description which does is a clinical doctoral fellowship because that was the way that we could continue to combine the two my experience since finishing the PhD and wanting to um continue those research skills within my practice has been has highlighted to me the challenge that perhaps people find when they're trying to do both together without it being handed you in a package um because it has been really difficult um not through you know any one reason particularly I mean since we finished the PhD obviously we've had a global pandemic um, and I've had a baby so they're two quite huge things which are going to slow anyone down in progressing in any direction Um, but I do think that drive that you have to have as a PhD and that passion that you have um, the challenge is to continue that into clinical practice when you go back um, I'm just getting to a point now where I've actually linked in with a couple of other people in a similar situation to us where I'm going, I really want to publish. <laughs> I really need to publish. And they do too. So we're going to actually get together and have some writing time together just online, um, which will be really nice. But yeah, that continuing in 
I can see where the challenge is if you don't have it just given to you as a package. So I would encourage anyone to try and find something that actually gives you the opportunity to have that protected time yeah. to do both. But you're you're kind of also saying that you found your tribe to help you on some of these paths. Absolutely. Like you found another person who wants to write, which is really helpful. The other, yeah. and I guess what, I guess some of the, there are lots of these um, clinical doctoral fellowship opportunities out there, like at the, from the Alzheimer's Society, from NIHR that match your wage. Is that, mm. did your fellowship match your wage, Naomi? More or less. It was a little bit of a drop because um, obviously having having been an OT for a few years, I'd gone up some increments right. in the scale. But I did know other people in the same time whose workplaces, you know, they'd managed to negotiate. Like we knew people, didn't we, who had come from band seven and eight jobs where they had managed to negotiate ways in which they could still um, yeah. That's be what getting I had income. So I okay. was band seven and they matched my wage. Mm. So um, yeah. there, it does depend which schemes you go to, doesn't it? You can negotiate yeah. that wage match. Yeah. No. Mm. Any other tips, Emily, on that front? So I would have said, you know, get on Twitter. So everything is advertised on Twitter, isn't it? It's just, it almost feels like you build your network on Twitter and you see things because that is your network of people, isn't it? So... And I guess it depends who listens to the podcast, but there's definitely something about how healthcare organisations promote these types of fellowships. So we're quite lucky um, where I work because we are invested in it. So we have two, it's only two, but two clinical academics who are sort of driving this work stream forward and they have like a monthly newsletter and they talk about the opportunities that are out there. And I guess it's about how people listening to this podcast might promote that within where they work already because if you're a band five nurse or an OT you know you sort of do your shift and rightly so you're exhausted and you go home and you may well not think about work outside of the day-to-day and and maybe going on Twitter isn't for you but there's something about how organizations promote these sort of roles and yeah and make people aware of it and um I I think it's probably worth saying I so I worked in Australia clinically and I I think these, my understanding is these systems and the um, the, the kind of clinical doctoral, uh, so the, the PhD funding opportunities for clinicians are not dissimilar across places like Australia and America. Um, and you do, you do, they are there. And I understand that not enough people are taking up these opportunities. So they're definitely there, but it's finding them is might be the, the issue. But like you say, Emily, that maybe it's about working with your organisation to locate where those where those opportunities are. That makes complete sense. And negotiating, like you say, Naomi, to make sure that you get the the the, the means that match your that that your wage. And actually, I would say um, one of the questions I get actually is from speech therapists and occupational therapists and physios and nurses who are, and other healthcare professionals. And they often say, "But well, I I was." about to have a baby or what if I have a baby or what if um, my partner has a baby or what if something happens and the one thing I would say with my experience has been I had a two-year-old and a five-year-old when I first started my PhD and before I started my PhD I'd have to go to work it was non-negotiable and I had to be there the whole time whereas when I started my PhD 
if there was an assembly or a school trip, I could say, yeah, I can go on it. And then I do my work in the evening. And they were the things I hadn't really thought about actually that, I mean, I'm lo I was loath to work in the evening, but I could, I could make that decision and prioritize the assembly or the um, whatever was happening. I, I felt quite lucky actually. I think we were just talking about this before this podcast started, wasn't it? But the level of flexibility that you get during your PhD is, I don't think I've, I will ever get that again. Yeah. Do you think it's been difficult for going back then to clinical? Um, I don't. I mean, I probably work very differently to, I, to when I did when I did the PhD. But the difference, I guess, is you haven't got your PhD continuously <laughs> looming over you all the time. So even though your hours are flexible, you've still got this massive 75,000 word thesis <laughs> that you know you've got to write within those four years. Yeah. So I guess the challenges just differ, don't they? Yeah, I think like the PhD, your time is flexible, but I'm always very careful with the way I say my time was split when I was doing both, because I say I had two days clinical and the rest of the time was the PhD, because actually the reality is it's not three days PhD, like it's pretty or consuming. Um, like it, it like we were just saying beforehand, um, me and Emily sometimes reminisce back to the good old PhD days, because, you know, um, <laughs> we, it was, it, there was a lot of good like you say about that flexibility but actually yeah there is it is all consuming at the same time and I think the benefit of the clinical role um is that if your boundaries are set in the right place <laughs> you can come home and then you're not at work anymore um which you don't really get with the PhD but then the PhD is also has an end to it whereas your clinical work you're back in the you know, you're back in that world of this is just my life <laughs> of work now. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know what you mean. The the the, the clinical stuff stuff stops at, generally ish. You might worry about yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> think about the left women are right, but yeah, it's not like a, you say like a huge like thesis hanging over you or. Um, yeah, not the same, like, what will they think of me when I stand up in front of everyone to do the presentation that I have managed to get my abstract in for, and then everyone's going to laugh at me because they know I'm not, you don't, it's not quite the same, is it? Um, but I, I wonder, I actually feel so like I'm a better clinician now. I feel like having gone and done a PhD, I've I know you're you're right you kind of have you immerse yourself in it in what you are doing and now I've gone back to so I do two half days of clinical work I say two half days it's not two half days it the, I do end up doing way more than that clinically but I definitely feel more confident like I feel like I'm a better diagnostician like I, I analyze things more thoroughly I write reports more effectively um, I communicate with my peers more effective. I know the I know the evidence better. I negotiate with my team. I feel more comfortable. My consultants that I work with introduce me as Doctor Volkman, and I'm like, oh, I'm just Anna. And then I, <laughs> I feel like it, you know it, it changes things in in a good mm. way. What do you think? Yeah, I would 100% agree with that. 
I mean, I think a lot of my career has been sort of right place at the right time. However, I will always stand by the fact that I don't think I'd be in this job now if I hadn't have done my PhD because you get the skills, you build a network. So like today, somebody was talking to me about building like frailty pathways and I thought, well, I know somebody who was doing a PhD in frailty. I'll just link, long, link in with them on Twitter. And she said to me, how do you know all these people? And I was like, it is honestly just through doing that PhD, then networking and the skills that you learn to be able to network um, has been really beneficial. And I think that's sort of like strategic thinking. So, you know, okay, we're doing this, but what could we do differently? And even have we thought about a PDSA cycle? And you absolutely, even if, because I don't actually write papers and I wouldn't consider myself an academic now, but this... Sorry, what is a PDSA cycle? Oh, so it's just like a quality improvement methodology. But even just to think about, okay, we're going to try this and then we're going to analyse it and we're going to draw the conclusions and then we're going to see what we could do differently sort of thing. Um, I don't feel like I would have had those skills if I hadn't have done the PhD. So even though I'm not actively being an academic, trying to get funding, undertaking research, I use those skills every day to progress my clinical work. Mm. I think um, that's a really good example, actually, of of putting those skills into clinical practice. And I think, like you were saying, the questions that you ask within your clinical practice change. So, um, again, from a sort of team management point of view, you know, you get a lot of people coming to you with problems and, you know, they want the people up above to hear what the issues on the ground are and my question is always what 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 is the evidence that you are bringing what data do you have because we can all anecdotally say and we all know that it's really hard and that we need more of this and we need more of that but what evidence do we have to show it and even the simplest thing as like filling out like stats sheets you know are, are based on you know how long interventions have taken how long have I taken my my notes like no one's gonna know that if you don't have the actual evidence for it but I don't think that's a question I would have asked if I didn't hadn't gone through that PhD process that's not to say anyone who's not done a PhD won't ask that question but for me personally it's just that way of thinking um where's your evidence and how are we going to produce the data and even you know let's try something new so um a simple example my role is like a breakfast group how are we going to show that this is working what why are we doing it you know what what are we looking to achieve here and how are we going to show that we've achieved it and yeah so I think one I don't think I'd have gone for my role when I did if I hadn't done the PhD I think it gave me the confidence to go yeah I've definitely got the skills for that but two like I would I do my job so differently because of it um, and also I think adding to that is how supporting other people to do their job differently um, as well. And people have confidence in you. Like you say, you've they know you've done the PhD. If you, they know just those two little letters before your name hold a lot of weight sometimes when it comes to actually people respecting um, what you're saying or suggesting as well. Yeah, I agree. I think it it kind of puts you on a, a gives you more equity it uplifts you in many ways but i i do like your example of the breakfast club we run a the other thing we run a few novel groups or novel therapy interventions 
So we run a, <clears throat> a group, we call it a script group. And, but what I feel nowadays is that I'm more confident about creating, create, developing creative groups and then outcoming them and then showing them off and saying, this is the group we ran. This is how we, cause we've, I've, you know, we have developed the data for it and I'm going to write it up in a peer reviewed journal article. And I will actually do that and tell other people about, I'm not going to worry about that. And I'm, I'm also, I think, and um, coming back to your examples, it's not only, I think also it's, it's how I support the people who I work with sideways and downwards, you know, who I support, but actually I find myself also speaking upwards to yeah. management differently. So when management are saying we, uh, you need to justify your service, I'm saying, yeah, we can totally do that with yeah. these, not only with not only this data, but this type of data and this other type of data. We've got loads. Of, I'm extremely confident with the data I've got. I'm not and I'm not intimidated by that request for data. I know exact. I can show you data till it's coming out of my ears, <laughs> and, and 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 to justify this, um, it's made me much more comfortable with those conversations that I think can be very scary because if you're working especially we were talking earlier on about the current national health service in the uk and how frustrating it can be at the moment to be practicing and and with cost cutting but actually i feel more confident that i have the weapons to justify why we're here it reminds me as well another good thing about the clinical academic route is that in my clinical role I don't this might be personal to me but my clinical role within the PhD I was supernumerary to the teams so I wasn't um which put me at a really massive advantage for trying new things for doing different things because I wasn't really counted in the numbers you do get sucked into them but um it meant I had the opportunity and I could go I'm going to go and shadow this group of people today or I'm going to, you know, you can really take your head out of the the team that you're in. And I got the opportunity um, within my clinical role during the PhD to sit on, you know, board panels, to sit in high up meetings, to do, you know, and actually experience those side of things, which seem un attainable if you're you know a band five or a band six or even a band seven clinician um going to some of these places and then that also gives you the skills to be able to have those conversations once you go back into clinical work and what i'm hearing is that's not a luxury that's actually a an important skill i've had people say to me surely doing a phd is a bit of a luxury and i feel it really is not it's just a different path. I remember when I first started, actually, so when I went on to one of the wards where I was working, when I was doing the clinical academic PhD, somebody said to me, well, how is that going to help us, you know, that you're over there just doing that and we're working here clinically? And I was quite affected by that at the time. And it's not until you get to the end of it and you think, you know, actually, if we, if none of us thought long term or tried to change things, we'd be in the same place we've always been, isn't it? And I think it is a change of mindset, but actually if we didn't have people researching and working out how we could do things differently, we'd never move on. No, and and the networks you can build. So I 
one of my um, PhD mentors is a neurologist and they didn't have a speech therapist in their clinic. And as a result of him mentoring me, um, we now, we then um, put a business plan together and we now have a speech and language therapy service in that clinic. But that happened as a result of me collaborating with him and um, creating a new service uh, through that kind of clinical academic partnership. Have you ever had anybody Google you since you've done a PhD? Have you had that, like a client or a family member? Not that I know of. No. I've had that happen. I've had that happen. I've had people Google me before they come to an outpatient appointment because they get their letters and it says, you're going to see Anna for, and then they say, we Googled you before you came and we know you know what you're talking about because you've got a PhD. And I think, oh, I had never expected that to happen. <laughs> no, I don't think, oh. um, certainly in my setting, I don't think any of the the patients that I see would know unless I told them. I still haven't changed my name badge to have doctor on it. The staff know. Um, and I had a very lovely consultant, like, because I actually started this role six months before completing the PhD. So my last six months of the PhD were working in this role and sort of finishing off. So they were kind of with me on that celebration of achieving it and, um, you know, I went off to do my viva and came back. So it was quite nice because the team there were kind of part of that rather than it being a separate thing that I came um, and they sort of saw that. So the staff are very much like that and, you know, um, the consultant particularly. But, no, the, the people I see day to day, I don't think they would know. It's on my email signature. <laughs> That's good, good, good. I like that. I like that. So if I now said to you, um, and we've been talking a bit about the pros and cons, but if I asked you more explicitly, what what do you think the pros and cons are of doing uh, just academia or just NHS or, or a bit of a, or maybe you want you preference a bit of a mixture? Do you think there are any, or do you think it's a mixed bag? Emily, maybe you start. Yeah, so I I don't know if it's a con. I think there's a definite challenge to be able to pursue a true clinical academic career following these types of fellowships. So it is, um, it isn't a luxury, but it is such an opportunity to be able to, be, to undertake those fellowships. And when you come out, you're almost a little bit disillusioned that that is how things are going to go when you leave. So Naomi and I were often thinking about how will we still continue a true clinical academic career and I think we've had to take the clinical route and I know people that have undertaken the academic route and I still think we are struggling to find true clinical academic careers so Anna you have one which is amazing but I feel like you probably had to develop that path yourself. Yes that's exactly right I, I agree with you because I think um, I, I'm going back to some of those mentors again who are not allied health or nurses and I've had conversations where medical professionals where they've said oh I th is there not a job that you can get in in allied health where you're you are a clinical academic I said, they just don't exist in the, in they just don't really exist so I have you're right Emily I've I think um I've I've kind of patched worked together a, a slightly complicated job role um 
and that's maybe something but having said that i think things are improving like the number of since i started my phd back in 2015 there weren't many i don't feel like there were many at all um clinical academics speak you know allied health or nurses and now i think there's more pathways opened it's more that, that you know our professional organizations are recognizing it more i feel like if the next people coming through there'll be more paths forged and um it'll get more there'll be you know there'll be more voices to 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 make this pathway clearer mm. but i think you know the conversation that we've just been having we are always no matter what we're doing day to day going to be clinical academics because we've always got that skill set haven't we so whether you go into academia you're still going to have that clinical background and if you go into clinical full-time you're still going to have those academic skills so even though you might not be doing an 80 20 split per se you're always going to be a clinical academic aren't you and you've got the opportunity to step back into academia if you want to or go back into clinical work if you want to and I think that's probably the the best pro isn't it you've got that I was gonna say yeah in response to what you're saying because we it's what do you what is a clinical academic career what does that look like but actually um I've had to kind of grapple with that myself over the years and actually I still will hold on to that identity as I am still a clinical academic it's just that I'm not you know like you say 80% within an NHS trust 20% with the university or something um I think there's more I could do to keep that open and I think there's a high risk of coming getting stuck in one or the other because but um it's about balancing up your personal life as well for me I was actually so straight after the PhD finished I moved relocated um back to be near a family but I was offered an opportunity to have both but I would have meant staying in the area and for for us personally in my family life that was that just wasn't gonna happen and you know we all have different priorities at different times in our life um and then moving one of the things that PhD I'd say one of the pros is what Emily alluded to earlier about the networking and actually I you know based where we were you had the trust networks you had the university networks but what I did was kind of sacrifice those by relocating in the country and almost like lost those networks I didn't lose them but suddenly geography played a part um but like you say you've got the skills I've you've got the skills we I, I think for me a lot of it is that I still the future is bright the future you know there's so much we could do there's so many so many directions I could go in you know and I like what you do Anna you know like where you've got lecturing as well and 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 I know that those options are still open to me I could go and teach in a university I could I could go up you know the bands in the NHS I could do go into an academic role because you can't undo the grounding that you've done yeah, you've got choices and you've just illustrated, yeah. Naomi, you were you had choices there. You had you were offered one route and you had the, mm. you had choices. And I think this yeah. I agree, I think this just um it opens up a, a wealth of routes um that you might not yeah. realise were there. Um so my last last question, it, it's a bit of a roundup really. Um what advice would you give to any nurse, occupational therapist? 
speech and language therapist or any other health or even social care professional thinking of embarking on an academic career? I I mean, for a start, I would just say absolutely go for it if that's something that's interesting and people have a passion about, because often it is because you have a passion about a particular area as well. I think we've all gone into our lines of work because we care about the, the people that we um, work and do it for. I'd say definitely pursue it would be my first thing, but then I think I would probably... Um, go a step further and and help perhaps look at where you can get those funding streams because I do think that is one of the biggest worries that people might have um yeah I mean I'm sure I could probably I'll come off of this podcast and think of many more things I could have said at this point but I think my main message would be just go for it because you know what I used to say to people when I said oh I'm about to do a PhD and they were like why and I was like, sometimes you don't know why, but you're pushing open a door and you don't know what's the other side, but there's something better. There's something good and it, there's going to be something more that wouldn't have been there if I didn't open it. Um, so that was what I would say. Nice. I like that. Emily? Yeah, I mean, I can only echo what Naomi said. I don't know if we said it during this podcast or just before, but those four years were the best four years of my whole career. You're just meeting so many people, learning so many skills, having so many opportunities that you wouldn't have. And and like I said, I don't think I would be in the job I am in now without it. I think my advice would be reach out to anyone. Like I have not met one single person that wouldn't want to help somebody pursue this career. So send the direct message on Twitter, get someone's email. And I think the type of people that go for those opportunities want others to go for it. So just re- just send that direct message on Twitter is all I can say because yeah. you're only going to get positive feedback. I would definitely say Twitter is your friend as well because I went on Twitter professionally um, just before embarking on the PhD and honestly the networking, the people that you meet through that and then when you meet in person at conferences and you're just building this really valuable network that is still there to this day. Yeah, and I I always also say that you, as a clinician, you often come with a network, and because yeah. that's the network that you bring as a clinician is your impact, your dissemination that you don't you often don't realise you've got that. So you come with a network, you build more of a network, and then you leave with a greater network of different people. It's yeah, no, it makes sense. Mm. I'm mindful of time. That probably wraps it up for today. So thank you to our guests, Emily and Naomi. It's been such an interesting discussion and highlights that you can. So we're highlighting for our listeners that you can be a clinician and then do a PhD and then go back to clinical work or stay in academia or do a bit of both or do a bit first and then do a bit of something else later. Indeed, um, we all feel it probably not only makes you a better clinician, but opens up lots more pathways, lots more opportunities. Mm-hmm. Now, we all have profiles um, as panellists on the website, including details of our Twitter account. So please do take a look. And finally, please remember to like, subscribe in whichever app you're listening to. And remember to visit the Dementia Researcher website where we publish new content every single day from careers and science blogs, job listings, funding calls and events, and so much, much more, and some of my own blogs. Um, But for now, have a great day. Thank you for listening. Bye, everybody. 
brought to you by dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, bringing you research, news, career tips and support.